If you can turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. Title of this morning's message is The Glorious Return. And um, I want you to be patient with me this morning. For some of you, I'm going to teach you something new. For others of you, I'm going to shatter your ideas of what you think. And um, I, I just want to share this with you because some of us have gotten our end times theology from the book Left Behind and the movies Left Behind, right? How many of you have seen the movies Left Behind, the books Left Behind? Anybody? No? Am I dealing with clean slates, right? The, end, the, the church goes up, the Antichrist comes up, he builds the temple, he's going to go into the temple, and then Jesus is going to duke it out with him, and the battle of Armageddon is going to happen, and then Jesus is going to finally win, and it seals the deal, and it's all over. And we get to be with Jesus all in heaven. And so for some of us, we get our theology from left behind. And so I just want to tell you, left behind is a, is a novel. It is, it is uh, based in truth. But it also takes severe literary license uh, in that in order to be able to do what? To sell books, right? That's the objective. They want to they sell books. They made movies. Uh, they did Kirk Cameron. You guys remember Growing Pains in the 1980s, right? Kirk Cameron was this heartthrob in the 1980s. And then they realized, hey, maybe Kirk Cameron doesn't work. We've made too many movies with him. Let's try it out with Nicolas Cage, Right? And I've never seen a movie with Nicolas Cage work, except for Con Air. <laughs> uh, and so some of us get our theology from these movies. And here's the truth. Whether we know it or not, we are affected by the things that we see and the things that we watch. And so let me just share this with you because generations of people have tried to interpret the second coming and what's going to happen in light of the following words that we're going to read from Jesus. So Jesus was talking about his second coming, but he was also predicting and describing an event that would be within the lifetime of the disciples. So let me just share this with you. When we're reading the Bible, right? When we're reading the Bible, we need to understand that history takes place within the pages of the Bible. That there are prophetic things that are uttered that later on come to pass. Not everything that's uttered in the Bible applies prophetically to us. There's some things that apply strictly to the nation of Israel. There's some things, some words that were spoken that apply specifically to the churches that they were written to and that were accomplished in the lifetime of those people. So we're going we're gonna to read through and I'm going to break this down because it's a really, really long passage. Mark chapter 13, verse 1, and then I'm going to pause. I'm going to explain every which way. Mark chapter 13, verse 1. And as he came out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what a wonderful building. Let me just pause to you. This is interesting, right? So the temple was wrecked when the Babylonians came in and they took the Israel and they brought them into exile. They destroyed the temple completely. Later on, there comes this very, very hated king. And in order to 
gives something to the Jewish people, he decides to construct a temple for the Jewish people. He wanted it to be grander than the temple that Solomon had built several hundreds of years before. And so this king comes, his name is Herod. He is the great architect and he comes and he builds this temple for the Jewish people. And so they're exiting the worship of the temple. And as they're exiting, the disciples says, hey, look, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. You see, they had been at the temple worshiping God. And as they walked out, one of the disciples goes, check it out, Jesus. Look at the temple. This is awesome. Look at how great and awesome and beautiful this building is. And Jesus responds with a very, very interesting statement. Because Jesus doesn't always follow the script, right? Mark 13, 2. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? They'll not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So he agreed it was beautiful. But he wanted them to understand that this temporary thing, it would be destroyed. And this totally scared the disciples. What do you mean? This is the basis of our faith. This is the basis of our religion. Our parents taught us that this is where you need to come. And here you are telling us that it's over. Everything that we have founded our faith on is going to be done one day. And he follows it up in verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Right? You, ever, you ever been in a conversation with someone before? They say things publicly and you're like, man, I didn't get that. Let me see if I could approach this person privately and ask them, hey, what did you really mean? And so they approach him privately and they say, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign that these things are about to be accomplished? So let me pause. The context is so important here. What's going on here? He's specifically talking about when will the temple be destroyed? The disciples were not asking Jesus about his second coming. They were asking him about when the temple was going to be destroyed. And it was in the answer to that question that Jesus brings up another issue. Look at Mark chapter 5, uh, excuse me, chapter 13, verse 5 through 23. I'm going to read the whole thing. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come and saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, for what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for, by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation, Standing where he ought not to be. Let the reader understand. Remember, this is being written to these ancient folks. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is in the house stop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. 
pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut the days short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ and look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray. If possible, the elect, if possible, the elect be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. So let me just talk to you because this is sounds so exciting. Everybody goes to here and it's like, oh my goodness, the coming of the Lord. But you see, Jesus was not talking about his coming at this moment. Jesus was predicting all of the events that would take place before the destruction of the temple. And here's the truth. He got it all right. If you go to Israel right now, there is no temple that exists on the temple mount in Israel. It has been utterly and completely destroyed. What sits atop the temple mount right now is the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Dome of the Rock. And the closest thing that the Jews can get to what the temple was is this wall. It's just the retaining wall. Do you know what a retaining wall is? Or do you see that, that, that nice uh, right gray wall that we have in the front of the church? It kind of keeps all of, all of the dirt all the way up here so that the church can be built upon this mount. That's a retaining wall. That is the only thing that is left of the temple in Israel. The retaining wall. It is called the wailing wall or called the western wall. People go there. They write prayers on the wall. They put it into the wall. Jews will go there. Jews will pray there. There's even a temp, there's even a tunnel that's there because the objective of the Jews is to get as close as they can to the presence of God. And they believe that as they walk under these tunnels, they are closer to where the Holy of Holies was. So the Holies of Holies is where this, this thing of ancient days would have been the Ark of the Covenant. And in that Ark was some powerful things. There was the staff of Aaron. There was the commandments that were in there. There was the manna from heaven that was inside that Ark. And it was this very, very powerful, powerful object. It was made of wood and it was laid around with gold. Now, for some people, there's this belief that for the end times to come, the Ark of the Covenant needs to be discovered all over again. I'm going to share this with you right now and it's going to burst a lot of people's bubbles. I believe that the Ark of the Covenant no longer exists. I believe that it was made out of wood it was laid in gold. It was, the temple was ransacked and it has not been seen. The Ark of the Covenant has not been seen for thousands of years since the Babylonians came in and destroyed the temple completely. Why would it matter to us? It doesn't matter to us as Christians. If Christians really get hyped about this stuff, man. We really get hyped about the end times and we really get like excited about this thing. We don't get excited about serving our communities. We don't get excited about serving in the church. But tell me about the end times. I want to know how Jesus is going to come and wreck everything and make everything new. Tell me all about that. I'm just going to share with you. There's no reason for the Ark of the Covenant to exist anymore. Jesus is the holy of holies in and of himself. You are the temple now. He inhabits you now. I want to just reduce the temperature on some of this hype a little bit. 
Because it's important that Jesus comes again for his church. But I think we've gotten so caught up in the signs of the times that can I tell you the previous generation to us. So we are a Christian church. But we are a Christian church that identifies specifically as a Pentecostal church. Right? So all of the Pentecostal preachers in the previous generation, they refused to go to college. They refused to study. Some of them right now are 80 years old and they still cannot even relinquish the reins of their church because they don't know what they're going to do. They've never saved a penny in their life. They don't know what retirement is. They don't know how to, their church is going down, 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 and they won't give up the reins because there's nothing else to do. Why? There's no preparation that they could have done because everything was, Jesus is coming soon. Nothing is worth doing. And there was a whole entire generation that preached this thing. Jesus is coming soon. There's nothing that's worth doing. Can I tell you something? All throughout the New Testament, you have an excitement from all of the apostles that say Jesus is coming soon too. And that was 2,000 years ago. Why? It should tell us something. There should be an excitement in every Christian's heart, from every generation, from every millennia that says we anticipate The coming of Jesus. This is a powerful, powerful event. But it is not the entire basis of our entire Christian faith. There's still people that need to be reached here on this earth. So Jesus is predicting these events leading up to the temple. And it actually happens in 70 AD. 37 years after Jesus speaks these words. The temple was destroyed. A Roman general who wanted to take over the entire empire called Titus, who would later on become the emperor of Rome, entered into Jerusalem, gathered an army together, and destroyed the city completely. They leveled the temple. The Romans literally threw the rocks off. I'm telling you, this was an ornate building. This is no joke. For them to have dismantled the thing piece by piece by piece, And to have taken the bridges where the the priest would gather every, every so often and blow the shafar to announce worship to the entire nation, to all the people that were gathered there. Stone upon stone, cast down, destroyed, building completely destroyed. And the Romans, if you ever look at this, there is, if you ever Google this, this is a pretty cool image. It's called the Arch of Titus. There is this huge arch that was built to commemorate the destruction of the uh, temple in Israel. And it was commissioned by the Romans. And there you have Titus on a horse as the huge candelabra is being carried off from the temple. Do you know what a candelabra is? Does anybody know? Yep. Celebrate Hanukkah, right? The menorah. There was a huge menorah in the temple huge menorah in the temple. As a matter of fact, interestingly enough, later on in Revelation, when Jesus talks about the seven lampstands, it is a menorah that he is speaking of. He's talking about a candelabra. So every sign Jesus said happened. He predicted that Jewish folks would hear of this coming attack beforehand. Historically, we know this to be true. They knew that this was going to happen and they did nothing to act on it. He predicted that there would be famine and when Titus came to Jerusalem, the way that he destroyed Jerusalem is that he brought Jerusalem to siege. 
And he did not allow any supplies to enter into Jerusalem and food to enter into Jerusalem. The ancient writer Josephus talked about the siege in his book called The War of the Jews. And he describes it in great detail. He said 97,000 Jews survived. 1.1 million Jews died, the majority of them from slow starvation. When Jesus predicted woe to those who were nursing, the writer Josephus, it's almost too hard to even bear hearing this, he said that the folks were so hungry that people were killing their children and eating them. Children were killing their parents and eating them. Josephus goes on to write about this attack on Jerusalem, that blood so filled the streets of Jerusalem that it would fill up to your ankles, the blood that carried out through Jerusalem. So when Jesus is talking about this powerful event, he's talking about this event that occurs in 70 AD. He predicted not one stone of the temple would be left upon another, and that is completely true. The temple was leveled. It was destroyed. And right now, the people who control the Temple Mount is a segment of the uh, Jordanian government. The Jordanian government controls the Temple Mount. They are to make sure that there's peace between the Palestinians and the Jews as the Palestinians go up into the Temple Mount to go worship. And up there in the Temple Mount, there's this huge, huge dome. You know it as the Dome of the Rock. It's this huge dome laid in gold. And actually at the bottom of there, there is a theory, there's a story. Several important things would have happened on top of that mountain. You see, that, that mountain is not, only, uh, is not only called the Temple Mount, but if you ever read this in the Bible and all of the Psalms, you'll know this, it's called Mount Zion. Mount Zion. And on top of that mountain is the same place where Abraham would go to sacrifice his son. And where he would find the, the alternative sacrifice representing Jesus. It's said the Muslims believe that it is from that place. And even the Jews say this too. That it's from that place down below there that the entire earth was flooded. That there is a well and the entire earth was flooded from that place. That concept of Noah's Ark. It was from that place that this happened. And so there's this place right up there on this temple mount as you see this huge building and there's this small dome. It almost looks like a gazebo. The Muslims call it the dome of the spirits. And it's in that place that we know that the holy of holies would have been. As a matter of fact, most Jewish people will never go up until the temple mount because they never, it is, it is, it is against the Jewish law to get near anywhere near the Holy of Holies without being a high priest. So they will not go up unto the Temple Mount out of fear that they may go into a place where they would defile themselves from from the Lord. This was so important to them. Let me clear up some confusion here because some confusion comes on verse 30, Mark chapter 13, verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So he was speaking to the disciples, talking about their generation, which is how we know that in this instance, he was not talking about the second coming as he's talking about the destruction of the temple. 
All this stuff that was going to take place was going to take place before this generation died. And he got that right. The temple was destroyed in the lifetime of the disciples. So Jesus was talking about the destruction of the temple, but mixed in with there, he starts talking about his return. But be on guard, verse 23. I told you all these things beforehand, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect. His elect is us. All who call upon the name of the Jesus. All who are chosen by Jesus. Do you know something? Despite you having received Jesus as your savior, Jesus chose you. He chose you. The Bible says he chose you before the creation of the world. He chose you. He chose humanity. He died for you. You are the elect. And he will gather his elect from the four winds. So let me, let me just explain to you something. Have you ever heard this terminology, the four winds? All right. I, I, see, this is the problem, right? When we get to end times prophecy, people want to make this so mystical. And it's not. It's just a saying, the four winds, north, south, east, west, from everywhere is what he's saying. He's using a poetic statement to say, I'm going to gather my people from everywhere on that day that I come. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as these branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you should know that he is near at the very gates. So what he's telling them is, hey, in the middle of this accurate prediction of the destruction of the temple, Jesus pops in and he says, hey, by the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back. For Americans, this chapter makes absolutely no sense. Was he talking about the destruction of the temple or was he talking about him coming back? The answer is yes. He was talking about both. 21st century Americans have a way of learning. We learn our pattern of thinking from the Greeks. And the Greeks were very literal. They would think as far as sequential time. So it's the way that we communicate too. Something happens, something else happens, which leads to something else happening. We think in sequential order. This is not just the way every human being from the existence of time has thought, right? This is something that we have learned from ancients, from the Greeks. Ancient Hebrews, though, they didn't think that way. They thought and they communicated in a circular manner. As long as the main point got out, it didn't matter the timetable. The Old Testament is really typical of this type of communication. If you really look at the prophecies of the Messiah, or you look at the Psalms or a prophet speaking about the Messiah, he speaks about the Messiah in a future context, but was in the middle of a current context. So he's talking about the future, and he's also talking about the present, something that's going to happen in the present. Jesus was also talking in that same way. He was implementing that Jewish strategy of communication. When the disciples asked him about the temple, he was taking the opportunity to answer them in their current context, but also to point them to the future reality that he would come back. So the question is, why would Jesus choose this moment in time to explain the second coming in light of the destruction of the temple? You see, let me just explain to you. The temple represented the presence of God. The Holy of Holies where the presence of the Lord was. But there was a problem with this. People couldn't get to the presence of God. There were veils. There were walls that separated them. So let me just explain to you something about this Jewish temple. Is anybody here Jewish? 
Yes? Yes? You have Jewish in your families? You guys are the only two people in this entire congregation who would have been allowed to worship in the Lord in the Jewish temple. You see, the rest of us, we would have had to have stayed in what is called the court of the Gentiles. And if we would pass, there would be a sign to pass into the Jewish courts. And before we would pass into this Jewish area, okay, there would be a sign that would read, enter at your own risk of death. Okay? You were not allowed to proceed further. And out of you who are Jewish that are here, anybody, you have a a last name Levi in your family? No? All right. Okay. Oh, Cohen. Anybody? Cohen. All right. Levi, Cohen. Those are two names. Both of them. Both of those folks that have those last names, if you ever know anybody with the name Levi, Cohen, they're likely to have been descended from the tribe of Levi. The priests. Those are the only people that would have been able to actually enter into the temple building. And out of those people that were to be able to enter into the temple building, only one would be able to pass into the very presence of God. And only one time a year, the Jewish high priest, we just finished celebrating, the Jews finished celebrating a day called Yom Kippur. For those of you who have kids, you are very grateful because your kids get off from school. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. It is the one day a year that the Jewish high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, be in the very presence of God, offering sacrifice, an atonement sacrifice. In other words, he was sacrificing an animal for all of the sins of the entire Jewish people for the entire year. That doesn't happen anymore. People couldn't get to the presence of God. Walls and veils separated them. But Jesus came, and here's what the Bible says. As soon as Jesus gave up his breath, the veil in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies was ripped in half and fell down. Meaning there was no need for an intermediary. I didn't need to go through a priest. I didn't need to be Jewish anymore to enter into the temple of God. God wanted all peoples of all generations of all time, international speaking all languages. You know how I know this? Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is the beginning of the church. It's when the Holy Spirit comes down so powerfully in that place. And everybody begins to to speak in tongues. And as they begin to speak in tongues, each person understands their language being spoken from Arabia, from Ethiopia, from all over the known world. People understand their language to be spoken. It is Jesus' declaration. This will no longer be a Jewish faith. This is an international faith for all people of all generations of all times you see even to this very day in Judaism even some of us and it's sweet I've been to the wailing wall even some of us we get caught in all the hype I want to go to the wailing wall it's a historical site I love you but it is a museum to the past I've put prayers in that wall too. That doesn't mean that they're any closer to God than me praying them from Butler, New Jersey. Okay? It's just a museum of a past, of a history. But you see, the history is so powerful, and we respect that with our Jewish brothers and sisters. The history is so powerful to them 
that they mourn in that place day and night. They mourn because of the destruction of the temple 2,000 years ago and they are still mourning because that is the closest that they could ever get to the presence of God here on this earth. Not so with those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that the presence of God is within us through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. He points us to the fact that as he talks about the destruction of this structure, this religious structure, that there'll be a day that he's coming back. There'll be a day where we'll be able to be, not just feel his presence, not just have his presence within us, but be able to see him face to face without walls incarnate. You'll be able to touch the person that you have lived for. So the question is, can we use these signs to talk about Jesus' second coming also? Can they be accurate about him returning as they were regarding the temple? Here's the truth. I'm going to tell you something. For some of you, you'll love it. For others of you, you won't. Here's the truth. I have no idea. We don't know. We know that this applied very well to the second coming, to the, to the destruction of the temple. It was accurate prophetically. It was something that they would have understood but we have no idea. There will be signs, but there's no way for us to know if these specifically will be the ones. Do you ever understand that there's, these people would have understood this in their context. This was for them, this word. This was for them, this word. I can go throughout all of history, all of history, and there has not been one time in all of history that we have been free in this entire globe from war. Tell me about a time in all of history where all of humankind has been fed. There's been famines. So they would have clearly understood this and said, well, this is for us. There's something that we need to be looking out for here. There are three things, though, that I want to share with you. Three things that we can know about the second coming of Jesus. Number one. Nobody knows when Jesus is coming back. Several years ago, there were several preachers that stood up and said, there's a blood moon. And with the blood moon, we're closer to God's return. Amen. Another 24-hour day has passed. We are closer to the return of Jesus than we were before the first 24 hours. Right? 24 hours has passed. But just because there's a blood moon doesn't mean that it represents something crazy. I've seen several blood moons. The heavens do crazy things. They do these things called eclipses. That doesn't mean that because an eclipse happens, all of a sudden the Lord Jesus is going to come. Several years ago, or a few months ago, actually, you could be able to see Venus. And even before that, you'd be able to see Mars if you were just looking up and looked like a star up in the sky. And if you had a telescope, you could look at it really well. Does that mean all of a sudden Jesus is is coming now? Some people have predicted for years Jesus is coming now. I remember when I was a kid, I used to go to sleep freaked out. Freaked out. Because I was like, (laughs) "Uh, is Jesus coming this week? (laughs) Is he... 
Is he coming? Because I remember there was such a fervency. The way that it was being preached was almost like, we know Jesus is coming in this generation. Yeah. The apostle Paul knew that Jesus was coming too. And he writes about it with anticipation. That doesn't mean that it's going to happen in our generation. Could it? Yeah, it could. But he gets to choose. We don't get to choose at all when he's coming. I remember, <laughs> I remember when I was a kid. I love my grandfather and my grandmother to death, right? But I remember when I was a kid, there used to be this show in Puerto Rico, right? It's called Prophetic Moments, Momentos Profeticos, right? And they would come back with all of the DVDs every time. Do you know the Pope is going to do this and the next generation of this and this? And there was all of this prophetic hype. This is going to happen and you know the Catholic Church and this and that and like... It, 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 honestly, it served to create a hype and it makes you worried and anxious and so to speak. And guess what? Jesus still hasn't come. Jesus still hasn't come. Why? Because it's up to Jesus when he comes. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. Do not get mixed up with a preacher who tries to set you up with a timetable of how this is going to happen. I've seen preachers do this all the time. They look at something in the Bible and they're like, oh my God, and there was a big cloud that erupted and that has to be a nuclear bomb that will hit. Guys, we're looking too far into this thing. There's one thing that we need to be satisfied with. Jesus is coming. We don't know the day or the hour. We know the angels are worshiping the Lord Jesus 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They're here on earth ministering to us, but they don't even know when this is going to happen. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. We need to believe that he's coming back and we need to live our lives ready for it. See, if there was something that the Apostle Paul over 2,000 years ago lived was he lived in anticipation of the Lord Jesus' coming. Not that it caused him anxiety, but he knew that the Lord Jesus was coming again for his church and he lived in light of that. His entire life was lived in light of that. Number two, Jesus is returning. Jesus, excuse me, number... Jesus is returning. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 through 17. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who are died. Oh man, I like that because there's a lot of people that have gone on before us. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. At some point in the future, the Father will look at will look at one of his archangels, maybe Michael, and he say, it's time. It's time to get things started. And perhaps that archangel will shout. And then Gabriel, the one who proclaimed the coming of Jesus the first time, maybe him, will pick up the trumpet of God and he will blow it. And as he blows that trumpet, everyone who has died in belief in Jesus as their savior, will rise immediately from the grave. So powerful will be the sound of that trumpet. 
and those who are alive, you will be what we call raptured. You will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord Jesus in the air and you will be with God forever. Nothing will ever separate you from his presence. Here's the third thing that I want you to understand. Jesus wants you to live your life in light of the truth that he's coming back. Whether or not he comes in our lifetime, it doesn't matter. Jesus is clear. He wants us to live our lives in reflection of him coming back. That's why we send out missionaries. It's why we preach the gospel because Jesus is coming back. And let me tell you something. I, I lived in anticipation saying, I, I want to be that generation that never sees death. Never sees death. But can I tell you, it's the wrong way to think. The Apostle Paul got that right. Whether we live or we die, it's, it's all gain in Christ. It doesn't matter. So all we need to anticipate is that there will be a day where we will see the Lord Jesus face to face. See, Jesus was straightforward in his answer to show his disciples and us that living in light of his second coming, it's going to be able to have us endure the hardships, suffering, trials, pain, loneliness, the difficulty of life. That's what sustained the Apostle Paul. He knew that Jesus was coming again. He would fix all these things. Every single one of those men, the apostles, would suffer greatly for the name of Jesus. And he was telling them the truth of him returning to make everything right so that they could get through all of the tribulation and suffering that they would have in their life. John, John, the writer of the book of Revelations, the writer of the gospel of John, the writer of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, so that you could get an understanding of what these men went through in his life. He's the only one who survives until old age. Out of all of the apostles, they're all dead by the time that John is old. And one of the things that happened to John is that they actually tried to get him to renounce faith in Jesus. And the way that they did this is that they boiled him in oil alive thinking that it would kill him. And when that didn't work, they exiled him and they sent him to the prison island called Patmos to live the rest of his life alone. James would be beheaded. Andrew would be crucified and Peter would be crucified upside down. Matthew would have a spear thrust through him as he was preaching the gospel in India. These are the apostles. These are the men who followed Jesus. And it is, from that, it is from that dead place. I could imagine the Apostle John as a very, very old man in his 90s. Wrinkled skin, but also damaged skin with burns all over his body. As he finally, out of all the years of his life that he had followed Jesus. You see, we believe that John might have been, was literally the youngest of all of the apostles. He was probably a teenager, a young man when he followed Christ. And so it is on that place, that dead place, with his skin wrinkled and burned, that John would have the greatest experience that he could give to us, where he would see the man who he had followed 
And he declares that the man that he had followed had eyes like blazing fire. That his voice was like rushing waters. And it is that revelation that John receives out of this dead place on this island of prison called Patmos where he would give to us the church, the book of Revelation. The last remaining of all of the apostles. Jesus was telling them they'd make it through all of that because they would be with him forever. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. I feel so bad when I enter into a funeral of someone who doesn't know Jesus. But when someone knows Jesus, there is power in that. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left unto the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry, command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, we who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You're suffering. Your kids are being killed for their faith in Christ. The Roman government is piling all on top of you. But take heart. This is not the end. I am coming again. And you will be with me for eternity. Paul says something interesting. Don't grieve like those who have no hope. We're to comfort each other in the midst of our hardship with the truth that Jesus is coming back. The lover of your soul is coming back and you're going to be with him forever. See, we're always, we've always been a church that has loved, celebrated, and lived in the reality that Jesus came once. We believe that every Christian church should. But this morning I'm calling you To be a church that loves, lives, walks, serves, and worships in the reality that the Lord Jesus is coming back again. 